Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Tuesday, February 20th. It's our climate story of the week, which we do every Tuesday on the show. And today we have a special guest to mark an anniversary. It was five years ago this month, February 7th, 2019, when New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in office barely a month, introduced the Green New Deal resolution, along with Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts. Here's 30 seconds of that moment, five years and two weeks ago. Today is the day that we truly embark on a comprehensive agenda of economic, social, and racial justice in the United States of America. That's what this agenda is all about. Because climate change, climate change and our environmental challenges are one of the biggest existential threats to our way of life. Not Not just as a nation, but as a world. AOC on February 7th, 2019. So how's it going five years later? With us now for our climate story of the week is Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whose district covers parts of northwest Queens and eastern parts of the Bronx. We'll talk about the Green New Deal and other things, too. Congresswoman, thanks very much for coming on for this. Welcome back to WNYC. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. You know, so many listeners have heard the term by now from so many lips. Cuomo had a Green New Deal. (laughs) Everybody's got some version of something uh, used in so many ways. I wonder if you would start by doing a reset for us, building on what you said five years ago, and explain how you think listeners should even understand the term Green New Deal today before we discuss how it's going or any debate around it. Of course. Thank you. And I appreciate that. I think and, and it's an excellent question because for a long time, for decades, we've had people talk about environmental policy or climate policy. Um, and there's a central question about what makes Green New Deal policy different than any of those others. And what really, I think, distinguishes Green New Deal style policy is that instead of treating economic growth and environmental protection and and environmental justice and social justice issues as competing interests, Green New Deal policy says climate policy is not effective or complete unless it meets three standards. The first is unless it has an aggressive 10-year decarbonization timeline. The second is it must create uh, good union jobs and it must create good high-quality jobs. And the third is that It cannot leave any communities behind in that it must incorporate uh, environmental justice, including social and racial justice components, as well as economic justice components, um, as part of the policy. Uh, Too often, we would see climate policy that would do one or the other. It may meet a scientific target, except you would have poor or, or Black and brown communities that do not benefit. Um, or the communities that have been exposed to toxic waste, air, water, et cetera, that would be left behind. Or, you know, there would be this this almost this sense of, of competition between job creation and environmental protection and conservation. And so what Green New Deal policy does is that it is it creates jobs, it centers um, environmental justice communities, and it, sure, it ensures that we meet our climate targets 
so that we can save the planet. So staying on the history for a minute and picking up on what you were just saying about good union jobs and social justice components, uh, you probably know there's a book that came out in the fall by Ryan Grimm from The Intercept called The Squad, AOC and the Hope <laughs> of a Political Revolution. And, and he's got an excerpt that I was reading on The Intercept site that includes a description of the competing interests of groups in the Democratic Party coalition as you were preparing the resolution five years ago, such as the NAACP was against a carbon tax or any form of carbon pricing because they thought that would allow rich companies to buy up those rights and continue mm -hmm. to put their polluting plants in black neighborhoods, and a tax would also raise energy prices disproportionately on poor and working class folks. So they wanted a way to eliminate fossil fuels, not tax them. But the mm -hmm. AFL-CIO opposed a call to end fossil fuels because there were so many good jobs in the field. So you had mm -hmm. to thread the needle in various ways, as Ryan Grimm reminds us. So how much on the same page do you think various progressive groups are today around that concept? Oh, I think there's been a sea change. I think that we have made incredible, incredible progress. And a lot of that is in no small part thanks to the advocacy and power of all of the organizing and the energy behind Green New Deal organizing uh, really was a driving force behind the Inflation Reduction Act um, that was that the president signed that Congress passed two years ago, which ended up has ended up becoming and culminating in the largest U.S investment, federal investment to combat climate change in American history. And what that legislation did was that it profoundly realigned the economic incentives to combat climate change. And so you're absolutely correct. Um, there were a tremendous amount of those fault lines, both even within a pro-climate uh, coalition, but generally as well, um, alongside all of these questions. But now, Whereas before there was a lot of debates around carbon taxes and, and the number of jobs in the fossil fuel industry, we have now worked to even the playing field where there's a tremendous amount of tax incentive for renewable energy and as well as, as union job creating renewable energy pro uh, projects, made in America projects and more. And not only, and you know, what, what those tax incentives do is not only do they incentivize that right kind of production, but they also make it more affordable for everyday people to access. And examples of that are like the EV tax credit or tax credits on heat pumps so that people can update um, and make their their heating much more efficient at a much more affordable price. And so that is actually, it is hard to overstate how much it has realigned the landscape. And previously, where there were folks on the opposite ends of certain climate questions, they've now been aligned to the same side of things as well. And it has done so much to accelerate our, our, our progress in meeting our climate targets. That, that was really interesting about how different groups, uh, different constituencies have gotten on the same page. Um, so I want to ask you about Biden, his you know, at first, he didn't even want to use the term Green New Deal, I think, in part to differentiate himself from you when he was running for <laughs> president. But his post-pandemic bill, known as Build Back Better, as you know, was supposed to combine climate provisions with FDR-style 
New Deal-like provisions like universal pre-K, affordable housing, the expanded child tax credit, more home health aid eligibility and better pay for them, and more. And when it got scaled down into the bill that passed that you were just referring to, the Inflation Reduction Act, I was actually surprised that the part that survived the most was the climate part. Because mm-hmm. I thought all those family-focused items would be popular across party lines out in America. You know, families crave and need all those things, I don't have to tell you. And that climate items would never get past Senator Joe Manchin from coal country. Mm-hmm. But exactly the opposite happened. Why do you think it came out the way it did? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One is that... Um, you know, of course, we fought so incredibly hard for these family items. The 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 essential nature of the child tax credit and how that transformed not just people's lives, but the entire country. Child poverty was cut in half. It was one of the items that we had fought hardest um, to preserve. But as you mentioned, conservative resistance to it was too high. Um, I think what Republicans saw in that was... Um, you know, in their platform of so-called fiscal responsibility, which I don't see what's so fiscally responsible about not uh, cutting child poverty in half and essentially doubling child poverty in the United States. But that's that's a different aside. Um, they, you know, the 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 line items um, and the the so the price tags on those they felt um, were too high. And so what we saw as these transformative family investments, and I see them as investments because they generate a profound amount of economic activity, um, did did have a lot of resistance. Senator Joe Manchin specifically um, cited his resistance to the child tax credit. I think they they kind of saw it almost as a giveaway um, when you know it 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 really became a, a partisan issue, which. As you noted, I felt it shouldn't have been. I think a lot of people felt it shouldn't have been. But unfortunately, um, Republicans developed this this very rank partisan resistance to some of those items. Um, but when it came to the climate piece, what is interesting is that I think it's it spoke to a couple of things as to why it survived. One is that I think one of the stories of this time that isn't being told enough is how powerful mass movements are getting in the United States. Um, I know there's a lot of doom and gloom out there, but when you think about all of the things that we have accomplished, despite resistance and speculation, not from one, but from both parties, I think we are starting to see really a story of how everyday organizing from Americans are transforming our political landscape, whether the our elected leadership is predisposed to it or not at times. And I think that's the story of what happened with this climate piece. The, the saliency of the climate issue, um, not just when we introduced the Green New Deal, but in general, has become so strong and so animating, uh, particularly among young people. We were having sit-ins, we were having mass arrests, we were having um large protests marches and importantly people were voting on the issue young people were voting on the issue um climate justice communities were asking greater questions about it it became a real point of political pressure so i think a that was a major piece of this but then also secondly um we 
are also reaching the science. You know, no matter where you are in the country, we are starting to see everybody affected by the climate crisis and importantly, everybody recognizing that it's the climate crisis that they are experiencing. Farmers in rural areas are seeing their crop yields drop and they know better than almost anybody else the sensitivities and nuances between how the seasons are changing. They have to count the weeks that they are able um, to harvest, the weeks that they are able um, to, to, to make sure that they are tracking everything that's going on and they see it themselves. They know something that has to be done. There are communities that are experiencing record flooding in both red states and blue states. And, and there's also industry that knows and understands that the level of investment that we need cannot come from the private sector alone. Um, it must be a public investment to really dramatically transform our infrastructure, create the jobs, create the skill levels and education investments necessary for us to tackle this. And so, you know, that and that was our goal when we first launched the Green New Deal. It was to unite these coalitions. And as we continued to do that, we started to pave the way uh, for this legislation. And when it comes to someone like Joe Manchin, I think there is also just a bit of, you know, we can work as as hard as we can in politics, but then there are just fortuit fortuitous moments, and um, and part of that was when Senator Manchin spiked the Build Back Better bill about six or seven months prior to the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, there was a profound uh, anger and bitterness in the party. And you don't want to work with someone who is going to, you know, string along our party for a year just, just to kill one of the biggest opportunities the country has had at the last minute. And I think that um, the blowback from it, per, this is speculative, but I think the blowback mm -hmm. from it might've been unexpected. And, um, and it was a moment where we needed an olive branch. It became very clear that we have to do something and we have to do something to help make people's lives better. And I actually think that the pressure from that as well, the commitment to that, um, and frankly, a Democratic Party that was willing to have some teeth um, and not just forget something like that is is actually what created a little bit of enough friction to move us forward. Pushback question from a listener in a text message uh, on what they refer to as the elephant in the room. She voted no on the infrastructure bill and is now mm -hmm. taking credit for it. She also just voted no on the recent child tax bill. Your mm -hmm. response. Mm -hmm. So on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, I think it's important to note that um, I have been supportive of the bill. I was supportive of the bill during the drafting. The reason I voted no is because as representative of New York's 14th congressional district, um, I had to fight for NYCHA. And we had a deal. We had um, we we had a commitment from from the entirety of the party to ensure that we would not leave our NYCHA residents behind. That we would pair Build Back Better with the bipartisan infrastructure law. That we would try to save the Build Back Better bill. And at that time, we have folks in NYCHA that are sleeping without heat. Who who still we still were discovering lead in a lot of their apartments. And 
I had felt at the time that people deserved both, both things, that if you wanted this bill to be passed, you were going to get what you wanted, but it, it was going to pass. But if you were one of those folks that were being left behind by that bill and you wanted to see someone stand up for you and fight for you, um, that you merited that representation and deserved that representation so as well. So it was like you felt free to vote against it because you knew it would pass? Well, I think it was both. I think that even if it didn't pass, I felt like we still had the leverage. My my assessment at the time was that I felt like we could still fight for Build Back Better. We needed both of these bills, and we were working for months for both of these bills to be linked and to be passed. And I wasn't ready to give up on that at that juncture. I felt like we could get both. And by the way, Congress still has to act on NYCHA. And I had felt it was our best opportunity um, to date in order to, to get the then $40 billion, now much more, capital investment necessary to change people's lives out here. Judith in Manhattan, you're on WNYC with Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Hi, Judith. I wish you were mine, and I bless <laughs> your mother a thousand times for bringing you into the world. You're just wonderful. I oh, wish to you, know Judith. the policy that you have about Gaza, and mm -hmm. I also want to know how is the Democratic Party going to survive with so much anger about the Gaza policy, not representing our values in humanity. Judith, thank right. you very much. I, I want to make her question about where you stand on Gaza um, specific to the moment, if that's okay. And it's mm -hmm. about what kind of ceasefire you're calling for. I think everybody knows you've been in the ceasefire camp. But right now, many in the protest movement are calling for a permanent ceasefire. Mm -hmm. But there's also a U.N. proposal said to be coming from the United States that would call for a temporary ceasefire contingent on all the hostages being released and that also warns against Israeli action in Rafah that doesn't include real protection for those civilians, which Israel has not announced. So are you for one version or the other of a ceasefire? Well, you know, I think... A, a, I want to make sure that we're that we're all kind of on the same page here with these terms because ceasefire is both a legal term, it is a diplomatic term, but at the end of the day, a permanent ceasefire, what that means to folks is a lasting peace. And that is absolutely what I am in support of. Now, folks from a different perspective, um, would say, and from a legal perspective, would say ceasefire technically is a diplomatic term for a time where um, where both sides cease hostilities, cease military hostilities as they negotiate the terms of a lasting peace. And so that the term ceasefire de facto is temporary because of the nature of, of that mean. To me, I think that you know, I don't want to get into the muck of arguing over terms because I think the general principle is the same here, which is that I do believe that we need an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and that we must negotiate the terms and figure out the terms of a lasting peace. Now, to Judith's larger question about our stance here, I am extraordinarily concerned with the Netanyahu government, their opposition to President Biden 
open defiance of President Biden, particularly when it comes to the establishment of a Palestinian state. I am highly concerned about the continued indiscriminate bombing of Gazans. I agree with Judith that this is against our values and that this is not what Americans believe in, nor what we signed up for. It's important to also acknowledge completely the horror, the trauma of what happened on October 7th and um, and the, the complete indiscriminate violence uh, that Hamas had committed. If you are an individual, even, you know, even if you take Netanyahu at his word and says, and where they say that their goal is the complete elimination of Hamas, that is not what this campaign is accomplishing here. Anyway, it, it's not what it's accomplishing here. What it is accomplishing is tens of thousands of innocent Gazans being killed, nearly 70% of whom are women and children. We are seeing a complete a, a, a blockade on humanitarian assistance, food, water. And what I am particularly concerned by is the U.S. role, because to a certain extent, Netanyahu, he is he is a head of state of a separate country. But for us and our decisions, you know, there was a proposal recently put uh, passed by the United States Senate that would block UNRWA funding um, entirely, which is the main corridor of humanitarian assistance to Gaza. And um, I it, it we should not be enabling the or even widening the, uh, the the aperture of possibility for an even greater humanitarian disaster and what we're seeing there um, mm. in, in Gaza. And yeah. I think that that we have to get we are getting to a point where um, we can't we 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 cannot participate in this innocent loss of life. We can't. We can't. So last question, and it's about President Biden, and then I know you have to go. Um, there's been increased talk recently of whether Biden is actually still the party's best bet to defeat Donald Trump, assuming Trump is the Republican nominee. Part of that is over the loss of faith in Bar Biden um, by a lot of young people, the kind of people who would be in your core constituency, uh, not just your district's core constituency, but, you know, your constituency around the country as a national mm -hmm. figure um, with respect to the fact that Biden only talks tough but doesn't act tough with respect to Netanyahu. And also just because some people think he's not presenting well anymore and the age issue, fair or not, is going to make him lose. So my simple question is, do you still think Joe Biden is the best Democratic nominee. At, at, yes, you know, and I know some folks, um, you know, when it comes to the response on that and as to why, I think it, I think we need to look at the landscape here. Um, I think, first of all, there's there there's the la the general landscape that we are working in. There's also the point in the process that we are working in. We have Democratic primaries. We have a small D Democratic process of going about this. And, and our Democratic process has yielded a result. And for me, just from starting with just a, a due process and a democracy point, 
I I think it's important to acknowledge that this this is what our democracy has yielded and respecting our democratic processes um, is it, it, it is part of what determines our nominee. Now, it, I, I understand there may be people of differing opinions. I, of course, believe in primaries. I came to office in a primary. We've had primaries. And when we look at where these concerns uh, largely come are coming from, a lot of them come, you know, it, it's a lot of media figures discussing this, et cetera. But we, I mean, you look at the South Carolina primary, President Biden won with over 90% of the vote. And you had primary challengers in that vote. Um, New Hampshire, President Biden wasn't even on the ballot and he won overwhelmingly through a writing campaign. And so whether we, I think whether any given person, any individual, whether President Biden is their chosen nominee or not, um, uh, or or is our preferred nominee or not, this is part of, this is what our process has yielded. And when we look at the votes on the ground, we are not seeing a resurgence for someone like Dean Phillips. We are not seeing um, that those similar concerns reflected in the electorate. So I think there's that, that first piece. Um, the second piece, you know, especially when it when it comes to what is being made of the age issue, um, I I do think personally that uh, a lot of it is unfair. Um, you know. Yeah, the president might mix up a few words. I've mixed up a few words. He's also handling a war, two impeachment attempts by a rogue party, um, as well as, I, I mean, this is probably one of the most challenging times um, in, in recent history uh, for our governance in terms of the strain on all of us. Um, but, you know, I think it's, listen, I'm, I, and, and I say this, as a member of the party, not traditionally in the president's camp, I'm a staunch progressive. Um, a lot I've spent a lot of the president's first term being a thorn in his side. He didn't want to do student loan forgiveness. We pushed him into forgiving student loans um, for 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 millions of people in this country, and they're still trying to push more. Um, you know, climate was not top of the agenda. We made it top of the agenda. There are there are grassroots fights that we don't always win, but we are winning really important ones. And um, but I, you know, I've spent most of this term, <laughs> most of my most of his first term being a thorn in his side um, in order to to push and agitate uh, for victories for everyday people. And I think it's important to note that while he is not necessarily predisposed to to always being in agreement with us, he's also movable. And as uh, someone who seeks to elevate uh, the power of grassroots movements, uh, a movable target is one that I think uh, is something to consider, um, as opposed to an unknown and a potentially unmovable unknown. 
Well, I know you got to go. I will just say, as a point of pride, speaking of primaries, uh, we are proud that we had you on before you were famous, when you were a little-known <laughs> activist running against Joe Crowley in a local primary. And yes. We're glad that you continue to come on and discuss the big issues of the of our time with us from time to time. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, thank you for coming on today. Of course. Thank you so much, Brian. Appreciate it. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.